Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Providence Road. We're really glad that you're here this morning with us, especially if you're a guest. We're honored that you would choose to spend um, this Mother's Day um, on Sunday morning worshiping with us. Um, yeah, co- college grads, uh, grad school grads, that's part of the, the bittersweet thing about uh, having a church in a college town, right? You have these, these moments every year where you have to say goodbye to people, and that's hard, but that's a, that's a good thing. That's a natural step in the story that God's writing for you. I want to, uh, for those of us who aren't in, in, in college anymore, um, summertime, I just want us to, to remember to keep um, college students and grad students in general in our prayers during the summer. Even though these students aren't graduating, many of them, um, or most of them, will be going to a different place for the summer. Um, you got people going to camps, trainings, overseas missions, doing internships, going home to rest. And we believe that the Holy Spirit takes them to those places. And if we remember summers back that far, if we were college students at one time, those summers are shaping for a college student. They can be shaping for good. They can be shaping for bad. So we want to pray for our college students here um, throughout the summer that God would use them wherever they're at, but also that God would keep them and sustain them and give them good community uh, for these three or so months. Three months is a long time. And so we want to remember to lift up college students and grad students during this time who are away from Norman. Also, um, uh, moms, uh, women in the room, I just want to say that I know this day is, um, it's one of those holidays that kind of has, you kind of have two feet in um, different worlds. Um, I I want this day to be a celebration for those of you um, who are moms or have moms, like uh, we, we need to celebrate those things. Those things are a blessing from God and we need to um, go hard after being joyful today and celebrating. But we also need to remember that, uh, like some other holidays, this holiday brings up um, negative emotions too, sadness, reminders of brokenness. Maybe there's strife between family members involving moms in this room. Maybe there's people in this room who have lost moms in the last year. Maybe there's women and um, that, that desire to be moms and they can't or haven't had that opportunity yet. And so we want to both celebrate with those who are celebrating, but also remember and mourn to some degree with those who are mourning or this day is hard for them. And so I just want to say that and uh, kind of put that out there. And this is one of those days that we want to try to do both and honor all um, women in the room um, today. Let's, get, let's jump into our text. We're going to continue on in 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 15. And we're, this is a long passage today. We're, I'm not going to read it all. We're not going to go through every verse like we normally do. More of a, a themed sermon this morning about the resurrection. We're covering about 30 verses, but we're not going to read that, that many and go through that many. But this is about the resurrection. So I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And um, we're going to, like I said, we're going to jump and skip around a little bit, but the verses will be on the screens. And if I, I believe that the... the the place in the scripture, in the Bible that is under your seating, it's 559 or 560. You'll find 1 Corinthians 15. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home. That's our gift to you. But let's start in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man all, has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then 
at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God, kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 31. I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which you have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat or drink, for tomorrow we all die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some who have, have no knowledge of God, I say this to your shame. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. Verse 42. So is it with, so is it with the resurrection of the dead, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man is from earth, the man, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I thank you that we have these kind of passages in the scripture where you just, through the apostle Paul, teach us about the resurrection. You really get in the weeds on what the resurrection is, and, and you persuade us to consider believing in the resurrection, and that you show us from everyday um, illustrations why the resurrection is plausible. It's not just a matter of blind faith that we can believe in the resurrection, and the resurrection does have power for our everyday lives. So I pray this morning that your scripture would convince us of that. And that it would empower us to do what you're calling us to do in your scriptures. That our minds would be changed, that our hearts would be changed, and that the way we leave here, we, we, we live, when we leave this place, would also be changed. And we love you. It's for your son's name we pray. Amen. So, back into the resurrection here. So I'm going to say this. He is risen. Okay. I know we're about a month past Easter here, but I want us to remember that he is still alive, right? He's still alive, and we, we covered the first uh, 15 or so verses of this chapter on Easter, so we've taken a little bit of a break, and we come back, and we pick it up here, so we need to remember, as we sit here in this room, Jesus is alive, and we had this, these, these verses in that passage that we looked at where Paul really shows us in really stark language, the importance of the resurrection. You have 1 Corinthians uh, uh, 15, 14, where it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. And then in verse 17 of that same chapter, you have, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. This is strong language from Paul saying the resurrection is a big deal. You might as well throw out your faith 
if you don't believe in the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we're just all foolish people here playing a game. If the resurrection didn't actually happen. Okay? Now, we talked about three kind of areas of hope and freedom on Easter. I just want to go through those really briefly to give us a frame for what we're going to talk about today. The first thing we talked about was the the resurrection frees us from guilt and shame. That Jesus fully paid the penalty for our sin on the cross. He did that, but gives us a freedom through the resurrection that the cross couldn't give us. When Jesus rose from the dead, that frees us from guilt and shame because we know the penalty that Jesus paid was enough. The second thing, he frees us uh, from the things that control and enslave us through the resurrection. He empowers us to be able to live the kind of lives that honor God and not honor the things of the world. The last thing, he brings us freedom from the fear of death and hope of life after death. Fear of death is a common thing. It's not surprising that we are fearful of death. A lot of mystery surrounding death. A lot of suffering surrounded death. But the resurrection, if if believed and internalized and thought about, can allow us not to have that fear of death. It frees us from that. Now, moving out of that, Paul continues on. This is the longest chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's one of the longest chapters in the New Testament. It's 58, almost 60 verses, right? 60 verses where Paul is just talking about the resurrection. This is really important to Paul. So I want to continue on through this chapter where where Paul really shows off his his rhetoric skills, his ability in the area of logic, and he's trying to persuade the church in Corinth to believe in the resurrection. He's trying to persuade them and to communicate to them that the resurrection is plausible. You don't have to have blind faith to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that we will rise from the dead one day as well. He's going to communicate that. And you see this argumentation all the way through it, like Paul anticipating questions, even throwing out questions that people are probably thinking. So we're going to go through a lot of that this morning because the resurrection is really is hard to accept. Like if we just come up to you and, and, and believe that a man rose from the dead, most of us don't have a lot of experience here on earth with that, like seeing someone actually come back from the dead. And furthermore, believing that when we die, we're somehow going to have these these bodies that are new, that have been transformed. And again, it's just so hard to get our minds around. Paul knows that. So he's trying to help us this morning. It reminds me, we just started reading uh, with our five-year-old, The the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe from the Chronicles of Narnia. Our five-year-old, we just started reading that to him out loud, and he, he loves it. And it's, I hadn't read it in a while, and at the beginning of that story, if those of you have read it, <clears throat> um, if, if not, uh, this is a spoiler alert, um, even though it was written in 1949. Um, sorry if you, if you haven't read it yet. Um, and uh, so, so Lucy, the, the youngest um, in that family of four kids, is the first one to go in the wardrobe, and she comes back out, and she's telling the other siblings about this. Of course, they just roll their eyes and don't believe her. One of the reasons why they don't believe her is because time, if you remember that story, time doesn't change in, in, in Earth or our world, even though time is passing in Narnia. So, of course, the three older siblings, we would all do the same thing. There's no way this happened, Lucy. You're, you're, you're imagining, you're dreaming, because the, the time hasn't passed enough for you to do all the things you said you did in Narnia. And we know a few chapters later, they all get to experience going through the wardrobe into Narnia. It's similar with the resurrection. Like, it, it, I think it, at first, it's, 
it's okay if we don't really understand all the pieces of the resurrection, but it's not okay that we stay there. And you can hear Paul's tone throughout this chapter on that. Now, Paul, if you remember, he was, he was an academic, right? He was an intellectual. He was a, a, a very studied, he was borderline scholar, right? Like this man was really smart and intellectual. He was, he was raised Jewish. They didn't even believe that the Messiah had come yet, um, much less Messiah came, died, and rose again. So if, if there was anybody to not believe in the resurrection, it was Paul. But Paul's life was changed there in Acts. And the resurrection was the thing that I think, if you just read the Paul's letters, that compelled him and it, and it moved him more than any other doctrine um, to do what he did. To take on the mantle of the apostle and the missionary that he was. So he, is, he really wants to persuade this church to believe in the resurrection and live like the resurrection is true. And the other thing to remember um, about this, this context of, of Rome is that the, the Roman Empire was godlike in and of itself. See, the Caesar was considered God. And so for a, a Roman citizen, the only thing that they expected to continue on into the, to the next life was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire dominated everything. So if there was any, any talk about uh, resurrection, people coming back to life, it, it, it just didn't, didn't make a lot of sense because the only thing that lasted was the empire itself. So they, had, they were a step behind in that way as well. That was making it hard for them to believe. I want to quote, uh, read this quote by um, commentator Stephen Um, and he gets more at this, um, he explains the context more than I could, better than I could here. So he says, the Corinthians were having a hard time believing the implication that all Christians will be raised in a body because Christ was raised in a body. They had categories for the soul living on indefinitely, but there was no category for the body living on indefinitely. They had a dualistic understanding of the human person. The soul, the immaterial part of the person, was seen as, as, as the, the, the as I should say, the soul was, I missed a, a, a line there. The soul was seen as the good part of a person, the really good part of the person, the part that was to be treasured. And I should say there, the body uh, the, the, was seen as the bad, the mortal part. The goal was to slough off the limited, filthy body so the soul could experience purity and limitlessness. This is still a commonly held belief, Um says. As many believe that the body is just a container for the soul. Death is seen as a release from the mortal body. The soul ascends to some netherworld where individuals can finally be free. This view is improperly held by many Christians who view heaven as a bodiless, amorphous existence in an otherworldly, heavenly location. All that to being said, this was hard for them to grasp, like it is for us as well in our culture, in our intellectual uh, water that we swim in. When you told them that our bodies were going to come back to life, they're probably thinking something like The Walking Dead, if you've seen that show, right? Like this, these bodies wandering around that aren't anything like humans. That, that, that's what you imagine when you see a corpse come back to life is something like that. They are not thinking that this idea of a body being transformed and living in this heavenly city. So Paul is going to, to, to really communicate the resurrection affects everything. What we think about when we die, what happens when we die affects everything. If, you're a, if you don't believe there's life after death, you're probably going to fall into one or two camps. You're going to be a hedonist. Where you say, hey, this is all we got here. I better go hard for my years on earth. I don't really care what I do to my body. I just want the pleasure here and now because there's nothing after this. Or you're going to fall more into the self-preservation mode. You're going you're to try to protect yourself. 
You're going to try to make life last as long as you can because life is all there is. You better soak up every moment. You better stretch the chronology of your life as far as you can because that's it. And both of those ways will not bring freedom and joy in the long run, and we know that. And that's part of what Paul is trying to talk about here. So let's look at verse 20. And again, we're going to go through this pretty quick, jump around a little bit. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, meaning died. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You first, you, we see this first fruits idea here at the beginning. Um, this is an agricultural idea um, that, that a, a, a farmer would get the, the, the beginning fruit of the harvest. When that first sign of harvest would come in, that was the fir- first fruit. This was a big deal. So much so that in the Old Testament, God um, uh, de- asked or commanded Israel to give the first fruits um, in, in, in giving and in tithes and offerings. But what it also did, it also was this confidence, it gave, it gave the farmer confidence that there was going to be a good harvest. Because if, if that first fruit came in and it was good, then the rest of it was probably going to come in and be great as well. Confidence was given to a farmer. Now, here in verse 22, um, you see this idea that for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And this is what theologians call federal headship, federal headship. And what it means is we are all represented by the actions of one person. That is Adam. Okay? The fact that Adam sinned in Genesis 3, we now all are born into sin because we are his posterity. We come after him. Right? It's no different than um, when, when, say, President Biden would, would, would declare war on another country. Now, even though if we may not be fighting in that war... Now, America is at war. And because we are Americans, those of us who are citizens, we are actually at war with another country. We actually use that language. Another example is if you were, when you were young and you were kids, like when you're really small children, you are impacted and you are affected by every decision your parents make. The parents are your federal head. Your life is impacted a great deal by what they do, even though as a little child, you have no say in it. You have no idea what's going on even, but your life is impacted by it. This is this idea of federal headship. And this is why we say that we were actually born into sin. We don't just commit sins, and that makes us um, unholy before God. We're actually born into sin. We have a sin nature because Adam is our federal head, and we all come after Adam um, and Eve as well. But the scriptures use Adam there for a federal head. It's a very part of our nature. Let's keep going. Verse 23. But in each his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjected under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjected under him, that God may be all in all. So Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth with a human body, like you and I, born, was born of a woman, like all of us were, and then overcame sin, overcame temptation. 
He was tempted in every way, the scriptures tell us, like we were, yet he overcame every temptation. He did something Adam and Eve could not do. They were tempted by the serpent in Genesis 3, and they fell, and they fell hard, and that's, um, that's what brought sin into the world. Was Adam and Eve, they, they, this was a spiritual rebellion, but they rebelled. This, this was contained in bodily, physical form. For example, they heard the serpent with their ears, right, with their hearing. They heard the serpent, right? They heard, and they saw the fruit, and it looked good to the eyes. They're using their, their human senses. They interpreted, they thought about the serpent's words. They tried to figure out, should they, should they take a step in this direction or should they not? They were thinking, this will, make me, they, this will make us like God. This will allow us to decide um, what is right and wrong, what is immoral and, Im- uh, moral and immoral. This will allow us to live under our own authority and not have to put ourselves under someone else's authority. All these things were going through their head in that moment in Genesis 3. They, they, were, they, they decided that what would bring them freedom and joy the most would be following the serpent's temptation and not following God. They end up eating the fruit, right? A physical action. The Bible tells us for the first time they realized they were naked. And they were ashamed. They were ashamed of their physical appearance. They tried to cover themselves with physical things, fig leaves. This was a spiritual rebellion of Adam and Eve, but it took place in a physical body. Sometimes we skip over that physical body part, but this is crucial when you talk about the resurrection. You can't, you can't separate the spiritual with the physical. This is why we need a Savior who came in physical bodily form to defeat temptation, to live a perfect life, to be full, fully submitted to God like Adam and Eve weren't, was it? Jesus lived a perfect life in his physical body. He died a physical death on the cross. He was physically buried and then on the third, third day, rose physically from the dead, leaving sin in the grave. He conquers sin, Satan, and death. In verses 26 through 28, what we just read there says that he has, he has taken dominion back. God has put things under him. He, God has subjected things to him. He actually said, God says the same thing to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. But Adam and Eve failed. They had dominion over everything. They had authority over everything. And they failed. But Jesus is the one who comes along, lives perfectly, and gets that dominion back. And he puts all authority under Jesus. All of it. God gives Jesus that authority. So Jesus now represents God to, uh, God for us in a physical body. He has a physical body. We, we, the, the, the first part of 1 Corinthians 15 says that people saw him. You People ate with him. They saw him eat. He had a physical body. And this is why we must have a resurrected body to be saved. For us to be re- reunited with God, we must have a physical uh, resurrection. Because without a body, we have no one to represent us. Because Jesus is representing us in bodily form. So that first fruits idea is really important. Because it assures us of victory. It assures us that everything has been put under Jesus' feet. And being we are the benefactors of that. That includes sin, Satan, and death. Let's keep reading. Verse 29. This is a strange, strange verse. Um, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not erased at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, this is the only time in all the scripture that this is referred to. And you'll notice Paul is not commanding people to be baptized on behalf of the dead, nor is he saying you shouldn't do this. He's basically just saying, hey, 
you're doing this, okay? And most people think that if there was any interpretation to be done on this, it would be that, you, that maybe people were saved, but they died before they were able to get baptized, so therefore people who are still living would get baptized on their behalf. But that is the best that we can do with just this verse. And again, this is all that's mentioned about it in the scriptures. The reason Paul mentions it is to show them that, hey, you're even being baptized on behalf of the dead, so you must think that the dead are raised or can be raised. If you didn't think there was a bodily resurrection, why would you be even getting baptized for dead people? So he's using what they're doing, which he, again, doesn't approve of or condone necessarily, but he's using that to show them that, hey, you already believe that there's a physical resurrection. Okay? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. It's like, man, Paul, like, take it easy. Like, you're, just, you're just straight out. He just says, I'm, I'm trying to shame you here. Like he's, he's trying to motivate them with shame. And this is part of that rhetoric and logic thing that Paul does so well. But what he's basically saying in this passage, just to sum up those verses, he's saying that um, if you have an incorrect and inadequate understanding of the resurrection, it will lead to defective or um, rebellious living. Like, you can't say, I'm going to honor God with my life and not understand and, and know about the resurrection. This is a great, great picture of what we believe has consequences. What we think about, what we believe, what we kind of integrate into our minds and believe will have an effect on how we live. This is why Paul is, again, going back to the resurrection, persuading them to believe because it's affecting how they live. Right? He, he must have heard some things about what was going on, and he points back to the resurrection as the reason why they're continuing on in this behavior. Let's look at verse 35. Here's a, here's a question he throws out. Right? He's saying, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? So, again, he, he's going down the road here with them. They, they may be thinking, okay, maybe we can believe this. Well, then how does this happen? Paul, tell us more about this. Well, he does. Um, he, said, he, he basically assumes that they're pushing back, and then he gets verse 36. You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body, and he has chosen into each kind of seed its his own body. So he uses a pair of common sense illustrations here, and we should understand these as well. This is the first one, right? Um, he says that life comes out of death, especially in the agricultural world. Life comes out of death. Um, out of death, a new expression of life emerges. A seed, think about a seed, you put it in the ground. It doesn't resemble when it's put in the ground anything that is going, it's going to turn out to be like. A tree, a plant, flower, whatever, it doesn't resemble that in seed form. But yet, we put it in the ground, we do the things to it, and we expect in a healthy world that that thing is going to turn into what we hope it will be. So Paul's saying we, we do this naturally. We expect this to happen. Um, it's the same thing with the resurrection, right? Our old bodies die, right? And something new comes from that. This is what Paul is saying. He's using this illustration to get us to understand with common sense this can happen. This is plausible. Verse 39. This is the second illustration. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds. 
and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the, of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for the star differs from star in glory. Here he's simply saying, look at the things God's created, right? We look at a fish and we see that fish and we see that thing in the way it was made was made for water. God made that thing for water with, with the gills and how they breathe and the, the fins, right? And we see the birds and we think, oh, that thing is probably good in the sky. I think they can fly because God gave it wings. We don't think, I wonder why I can't fly and birds can fly. Well, God made birds to fly. He didn't make uh, us humans to fly, right? We see the sun and we think, well, that, that, thing's, that thing's hot, right? It produces light. It's good for us here on earth when we turn and we get to receive that sunlight. The moon has other purposes, right? It's different than the sun, it's common sense like logic that Paul's using to get us to understand that there are certain environments that God makes certain bodies for. So why couldn't God make a body for here on earth for us and make a different transformed body for the heavenly realms, for the heavenly city, uh, the, 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 the new heavens and new earth that God is going to create? Again, common sense, everyday um, illustrations Paul is giving us here. So in one sense, the resurrection is really easy to understand. It's really easy to understand when Paul puts it this way, but in another sense, it's really, really difficult. It's, it's otherworldly. Other it's, um, it's spiritual, right? It's, 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 it's this transforming kind of mystery in a lot of ways. Look at verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. So he's, he's got this list of comparisons here. So on one side, you have what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is also a spiritual body, right? So he's saying here there are, some, there's, there are these pairs of comparison, and this um, helps us try to make sense of this. Because it, it's hard to understand how can an imp- a perishable body, um, how, how can a weak, broken, decaying body like ours, and if that doesn't make sense to you, you're not 40 yet, um, how can our bodies, amen, from the over 40 crowd, um, if, um, if how can that body, the body I'm in right now, how can this possibly be raised to this imperishable body? Like that makes, that, that, that's hard for me to believe some days when, when I have some aches and pains, right? Like how does this happen? How is this going to work? This beautiful, this whole, this eternal body that I'm going to have one day in the new heavens of the new earth. How does that work? How does it work? And it's, it's a question I think we're always going to ask, but Paul's just saying we, it, it is going to happen. And it affirms this longing in all of us that we spend so much time and energy in our world trying to stay young, trying to look young, trying to prolong death, and, and we try, most of it's all of our might to, to, to stay young or stay alive as long as possible. But we know death always wins. Death is always going to be the victor on earth. It all, he always is. But what the resurrection affirms and this new body affirms is this, this deep desire I think we were all made with, this Genesis 1 and 2 type body, um, or even just, I guess not body, but mindset that we all have that says, this isn't right. Death isn't right. This decay isn't right. And yet, we do all these things that don't eventually work on the long term to stay young, 
But what that tells us is that's a natural, God-given impulse that we have to stay young. And the resurrection shows us that that is going to come true that one. We are going to get a new body one day that will last for all eternity. So we can actually not have to fret and, 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 um, and panic and obsess about trying to stay young. We're trying to prolong death as long as we can and make that our God and make that our idol. Because we know if you're in Christ, if you have faith, you will be given a new body one day. That impulse, that desire will be fulfilled one day. It doesn't happen by escaping our present bodies, um, by, by trying to, 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 to change them or saying my body just doesn't matter or whatever. It comes through the transformation of the bodies we have now. Uh, let's finish it off. Verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is comparing Adam and Jesus here. Jesus is often referred to in the scriptures as the second Adam or the better Adam. Verse 46, but it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, Jesus, incarnation there. 48, as was the man of dust, so are also those of the dust, like us. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. There's the good news there. We're of heaven now, if you're in Christ. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, like we all have, we shall also bear the image of heaven. And you see the good news there. He finishes with the gospel. This, this fact that Jesus, that like us who are, who are in Adam, we, we, we all die. We all will eventually die. So also in him, we will be made alive. Jesus became dust so that we might be given a heavenly body. He was the grain of wheat that was buried into the ground who died and was raised to guarantee the first fruits that we would also be raised one day in heaven. He was God. He was the imperishable one. At the right hand of God, came down to earth, became perishable to save rebellious, perishable people like us with perishable bodies, save us and give us imper- well, the promise to give us imperishable bubble bodies one day, reuniting us to God. He became dishonorable like one of us, so that dishonorable people like us can then become honorable one day. He was powerful, yet he became weak, so that we are who are weak, and weak in spirit, weak in mind, weak in body, so that we might become powerful in him. Jesus, who deserved life, experienced death, so that we all, who deserve death, may experience life. Life here on earth, partially, right? Like we, get, we, we, we can chase after freedom and joy, and that's promised to us here, but we won't understand completely what that's like until we die or Jesus returns. So here's the deal. How we view the human body, how we view the resurrection, will radically shape how one thinks and lives. I put out those two categories at the beginning. You have the, the mystic, the escapist mystic. Maybe some of us are bent that way. right? We just want to kind of set aside our physical body and just work on our spirit, work on our soul. Because like Um's quote I read earlier, like, that that's what's most important is our soul. It's our spirit. It's not really our body. Our bodies don't really matter. So we should just really get in touch with God through our inner soul. And, and we don't have to be escapist mystics because we, we see that we are embodied people. People. Our, our spirit, the scripture calls um, our bodies the temple of the Holy Spirit. We can ask the question, how can I actually honor God with my life? How can I honor God with my hands? How can I honor God with my senses? It's more than just allowing our souls and spirits to connect with God. 
We also don't have to be these out-of-control hedonists, trying to, trying to soak up everything on earth while it's here and just, just throw, throw care for our bodies out the window and just be reckless in how we live in all these ways to chase pleasure. Why? Because we have resurrected bodies one day. These bodies won't just be thrown away. They'll be transformed into new bodies. So God cares how we treat our body to a certain degree, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't worship it. We shouldn't worship how it looks because we're going to get a new one one day. This one's going to die and be decayed and get old anyway. But we can honor God with our bodies. We can do things that honor him. We can glorify him with our bodies now. We don't have to fall into either one of those ditches. I want to give three quick applications that I'll be finished. Number one, the resurrection is true. Right? That's, one of, that's probably Paul's main purpose in this chapter. The resurrection is true. It happened. And hopefully, you, you, we should go back and read this passage, hopefully you do at home, and just listen to Paul's persuasion and how he's trying to get us to believe that. Number two, our bodies matter. Our bodies matter, and I just mentioned that. They matter. What we do mat- matters with our body. Earlier in this book, in 1 Corinthians 6, I believe, Paul says, how can, unite, how can you unite your body to a prostitute? And what he's getting at there is that these people who were Christians who just thought this was about the soul and the spirit weren't really caring what they did with the bodies. But he's saying, he's, 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 in, he's uh, raising the value of the body by saying, how can you unite your physical body to a prostitute when your body is united to Christ? When you unite yourself to a prostitute, you're uniting Christ to a prostitute. How, how, how can it ever be that? Because, we're, again, our physical bodies matter. Third uh, we are able to do what God asks us to do, right? When you read the scriptures, there's commands in here. There's things that God says to do to be obedient to him, to love him. And those things are often hard. When we are saved in Jesus, one thing we often miss in the gospel, that God doesn't just save us for our, from our sins he, and, and give us eternal life. He also sends the spirit to live inside of us to, to fill us with the living Jesus so when he asks us to do something in the scripture, we can trust the Spirit's going to help us and empower to do what he's asking us to do. But oftentimes, we, we, we live in this culture that we, we, we get saved, we, we know we're going to heaven, and then for the rest of our lives, it's just trying, trying, trying really hard in our own strength to do everything God's telling us to do. And we forget that he's alive and he lives in us through the power of the Spirit. And that's really good news. Think of like loving your enemies. That's nearly impossible. Nobody wants to love their enemies naturally. We not, none of us naturally want to do that. None of us are naturally going to do that well. But he says that, he gives us the spirit, and the spirit's going to move us and lead us. So our role is to get more in touch with the spirit, to listen to the spirit, to be obedient to the spirit, to learn to hear the spirit's voice, to allow the spirit to uh, fill us and lead us to live in that, in that way so we can live lives that honor and glorify God, it's hard to do these things. We can be bold. We can be courageous. We can do things that he tells us to do that are difficult. He's alive. He lives us in his, in, in, with his spirit. So when we leave this place today, let's live like followers of Jesus who have the Holy Spirit, who's empowering us to live lives and honor and glorify him in everything we do in life. Let's pray. Father, this is such, such good news. Such good news. Um, yes, the, the death on the cross um, matters. It's core to the gospel. The resurrection, though, it's a future-oriented hope. He's alive now in us. He lives in us through the power of the Spirit, those of us who have professed faith in him, in you. 
good news that we have the Holy Spirit. So I pray that we would all trust that that is true, that we have the Holy Spirit that desires to obey you, and through that helps us obey you. I pray that we would just submit ourselves to you this morning, that we would humbly admit that we can't do this on our own, that we need your help to live the lives that you've called us to live. So help us this morning. Send us your spirit so we can glorify and honor you with our lives. And so that other people may know you. Other people may experience your grace and your mercy and your love through the ministry that we all have in this room. Those of us who are followers of Jesus. We love you. Help us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.